0: This episode contains graphic detail of investigations involving the recovery of deceased persons from both land and water by operational police diving teams. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia, to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. Came into sharp focus in the uk police identifying the suspect who
1: killed two people on london bridge police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical republican organization the new ira freedom
0: itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward
1: Earth. and freedom will be defended
0: there is a whole other world that very few police officers get to experience during their careers A world where very little can often be seen and the only way of navigating around this often cold and gloomy environment is through the use of touch. Where an officer's hands and this sensation of touch suddenly becomes their eyes. Police diving units are becoming sadly more and more rare these days. But in years gone by they have been a critically important arm of every major police service and home county force. Whether searching for and retrieving deceased persons from areas of water to assisting with the recovery of someone found several months after dying alone in their property. These incredible diving units do it all, and do it all with an incredible degree of resilience and determination to support the families of those that have lost loved ones, sometimes in horrific circumstances. My next guest on the Protect and Serve podcast was one of these incredible police officers. Dedicated to her job, she embodied everything that was expected of a professional police diver, and more. A typically male-dominated environment, retired police sergeant Jill Williams, QPM, was one of the most respected police divers in the country. The first female sergeant to lead a dive team, not only within Thames Valley Police, but in the country. Jill has led on and taken part in hundreds of high-risk and challenging police diving operations. She has taken her expertise overseas to countries devastated by natural disaster. She, like many other incredible women in policing, has paved the way for other women to follow in her footsteps. In this episode of Protect and Serve, Jill and I sit down and recall this career in police diving, one that is not for the faint-hearted, but gives an incredible insight into one of the most challenging roles in UK policing. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. And again, it's another week and another incredible guest. We're rounding out the week last week with um, International Women's Day, which is such an incredible day, I think, for all of us to recognize that There are so many incredible women doing incredible jobs equally at the same level as men and and some even achieving even greater successes, which I think is something for us all to be incredibly proud of. But one area of policing, I've I've explored many areas in the police, from uh, royalty protection to response to territorial support groups um, to aviation. But one area that we haven't looked into, and I've had a little bit of exposure in my time in Australia, is the Marine Unit and the incredible officers that spend most of their career under the water. And I'm incredibly lucky to be speaking to one of the first police sergeants of the Marine Unit here in the UK, Jill Williams. Jill has got a book which has come out, been out for a while, called Searching High and Below, a policewoman's tale looking for the dead and finding hope for the living. And she joins me this morning on the podcast. Jill, good morning. Welcome to the show. How are you?
1: Good morning. Yeah, very well, thank you.
0: So, Jill, like every good detective, I like to start at the beginning of everybody's story, going into policing and ask, just quite simply, why the police?
1: Uh, well, I never intended to go into the police, to be quite honest. Um, I was always made out to be an artist. I was going to go to art college. Uh, I loved art in every shape and form. But I also had a massive interest in adventure and the outdoors. And I was always getting into trouble as a kid because I would disappear off to the nearby stream or river and come back absolutely soaking wet, wondering (laughs) why my mum knew exactly where I'd been, despite the fact that there were wet footprints everywhere and my clothes were dripping and um in about 2000 sorry when i was about 14 um the school offered a work experience week and i grew up on a, a council estate and in oxford and uh i i i was looking at whether i could do something a week to do with art or to do with animals i love our animals And there was nothing. Everything had been taken up that I wanted. And the last choice, the only thing that was available was the local police station. And so I thought, what the heck, nothing to lose. I'll just put in for the police station. I think I was was probably one of the only ones of my friends that uh, hadn't been in trouble with the police. And I went along for a week, absolutely loved it. And as a result, I joined the police cadets when I was 17, a week after my 17th birthday. And so uh, I did 18 months as a police cadet based in Cowley and in Oxford and just had the time of my life. Um, it just opened my eyes to to what the police service had to offer. But also as a cadet, I was just being paid to, to have a great time um, fulfilling all of my adventures. And, you know, it was just like a dream come true. And then in 2000, sorry, no, I, I'm way out here. In 1980, January 1980, I joined the regular police force as a police officer, and uh, I got posted to Marlowe in Buckinghamshire. I hadn't ever heard of Marlowe before. I had to look up on the map. And so uh, got posted to this, what was then, a sleepy little town on the River Thames, and did... Um, uh, two years probation there, and uh, just loved it. Really, really enjoyed it. But after after two or three years, I I thought, am I going to spend my my career doing this? You know, I I fully intended to do my thirty years. Uh, I want, I wanted a full police career, and but I thought I I don't want to be doing this all the time. The other thing I found, I discovered was I didn't like confrontation, and there was a particular incident where. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in the middle of nowhere in the Chiltern Hills in the middle of the night on my own. In those days, uh, police policewomen uh, drove panda cars on their own. didn't matter what they say or night. They attended jobs on their own. You weren't double crewed very often. And I found myself dealing with two drunken males uh, who had crashed their car. And I called for assistance because they, they, they had actually uh, managed to get a lift back home um, put, picked up their bulldozer and drove from High Wycombe all the way to the other side of Marlow in the dead of the night in this great big bulldozer and down to this little windy lane to recover their car with this bulldozer. And I'd, I'd arrived on the scene, someone had reported this car in the ditch. I'd arrived on the scene and uh, I saw these great big lights coming downhill towards me, have, having been listening to. Radio commentaries of a bulldozer, a big yellow j c b crashing into cars all the way down the a forty and as I saw these headlights coming towards me i my heart sunk because I realized that it, this was the very safe j c b and uh, oh. they, one of them in particular, the driver, started getting quite aggressive towards me, and I was calling for assistance. Nobody could find me and uh, my my uh, husband to be at the time, who was also in the job. Got there first. He was on duty at High Wickham Police Station, and he legged it over. He knew where I was, and he was the first to arrive. Anyway, they they got arrested, and uh, and it just made me realise I was very very vulnerable, and and I just didn't like it. And even to this day, I don't like confrontation with people. And so I thought, what what can I do? With I still love being a police officer. That was the thing. What can I do that that won't give me that same sort of confrontation? And and I thought about the mounted section, but I thought, first of all, I'd have to move to Milton Keynes, which I didn't want to do. But also there was still a confrontation because they, they were mainly used in uh, football matches, crowd demonstrations. So it was massive confrontation, you know. And so I then thought, oh, I love water. I love diving. Uh, sorry, I love swimming. I love anything to do with water. I'd never dived. I thought, what about the underwater search team? And I thought, there's no way you're going to get me in nil visibility looking for a dead body. And so I applied for the boat section. In those days, the marine section consisted of both the boat section, which patrolled the River Thames, and the underwater search team. And me and my husband had bought a boat for our for our honeymoon, we bought this little 18-foot cabin cruiser and had our honeymoon on it. So I knew quite a lot of the River Thames because we spent every weekend on the Thames and what have you. So, uh, I, and I was quite happy handling boats as well. So I applied for the, the boat section and got it, got the job. And um, this was in 1986. And on the very first day of starting on the boat section, we went for a, a life-saving swimming session in local swimming pool. And the divers came along, police divers came along with all their equipment. And they said, do you want to go? And of course, I'm up for anything. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. And I had a go with this diving equipment in the pool, held my breath. And they were going, breathe, you can breathe, you know. And uh, just loved it. And I thought, wow, why didn't I apply for this? You know, that was it. I was hooked. And there was a vacancy coming up on the dive team. And I applied for it. And they didn't want me because I was female, there'd never been a female on the team ever. And they tried everything to put me off uh, getting, you know, applying for the job, first of all. And um in those days, before you were even trained as a diver, they could put you into the water into all sorts of scenarios just to test you. And so my very, very first open water dive was I was budded to an experienced diver. And I was in the middle of the River Thames in Caversham in Reading, and it was in flood and we were looking for a car. And I was all over the place. I was upside down. I was back to front. I hadn't got a clue where I was, but I absolutely loved it (laughs) and came out with a huge grin on my face. And then my second dive was uh, in a weir on my own, downside of a weir, and my fins got sucked off my feet, but I still loved it. My third dive was in a reservoir, Datchit Reservoir, and I was in 30 metres of water looking for a car. I was with someone else at that point, loved it. And then my fourth dive, I was in flood conditions at, um, near Clifton Hamden uh, looking for a possible body. There'd been a, a boat fire and they thought maybe the person had jumped into the water or they, they didn't know. So they had to discount that there was no body in the water. So I was put in on a search pattern uh, which I had to sort of study and memorise just so I knew how to work it on my own, looking for a dead body. And again, absolutely loved it, and got out the water. And of course, they then the sergeant then realised that um, he was onto a bit of a loser there because whatever he threw at me, I just absorbed and loved more and more. And so, in April 1987, uh, I attended the what was then the National Police Diving School in Sunderland, run by Northumbria Police. And my very first day there, uh, the sergeant in charge of the course said, welcome to everyone, but this isn't a place for, for women, so I don't know why you're here. Oh, dear. I was the only woman in, in a course of uh, seven other guys. And, uh, and I mean, he couldn't have done me a bigger favour, really, because I just love a challenge. And it was he was just like, you know, give me the green light to to, you know, Really showing what I could do and and as i say i i I'd also got myself really really fit I was always fit anyway, but i'd really really pushed my fitness and um, yeah i just i it was an eight week course commercial course, but with where they taught you it was a proper yeah. commercial diving course, but they also taught you um police uh, search and recovery techniques and forensic per- preservation that sort of thing underwater, and I just loved it. And uh, eight weeks of of starting off shallow and getting deeper and deeper and deeper till we got to our maximum depth of fifty meters, which we were allowed to dive to, and and it was just great. And I came top of the course. And at the end of it, the the um, sergeant in charge of the course apologized and said I got it completely wrong. And and basically, what they were, it seemed, what they were all worried about was, first of all, I was female. No, my team and the dive school and never had females there and they they were worried that I would demand special um you know requirements would, would I need to change in a separate area what about if I needed to go to the loo well I used to strip off with all of them once you've seen once you've seen everyone's backside you've seen everyone's <laughs> backsides and, and it's no longer an issue and and I could pee into a bucket as well as any man you know and so so they soon realized that that, that I wasn't going to cause an issue I, I was just going to get on and do the job because that's all I wanted to do you know so so that was that was the start of it all really
0: so, so i've you know a couple of important questions is when you first decided that the sort of policing career was for you often that can be you can face challenges from family in terms of that decision because the police is kind of a job which sometimes people have an air of caution around. How were you able to manage expectations? What was the reaction from family once you said that this policing career that you were going down, you know, which you were going to pursue? Was how what was the response like?
1: Um, my mum and dad throughout the whole of their lives uh, when I was growing up. They they've both passed away now, sadly, but. They have been nothing supportive in everything that I've wanted to do. I just had the most amazing childhood, you know. They, I, apart from being told off for getting into river, going into rivers on my own, which makes sense, really. <laughs> um, you know, they supported everything. And um, when I said when I said that I was going, first of all, for a work experience week at the police station, they were thrilled. But they would have equally been thrilled if I'd have gone into looking after animals or or, you know, into the art career that I was expected to do. And and as a, uh, my mum and dad were always, like, my best friends, and I included them in everything I did. And so anything to do with being a police cadet, I did lots of long-distance, you know, ultra-running, ultra fell-running ultra fell running events through the police cadets, and they would come along and support. And, and I just included them in everything, and they got to know all my work colleagues who used to pop in for coffees. And even when I was posted away from... Um, Oxford to to Marlow. I mean, for years after, the the local police still called in to my, see my mum and dad, you know, and check they were all right. And and then when I got posted to Marlow, of course, if if ever I, you know, had a a, a party at the the flat where I shared with another police woman, my mum and dad were always and They got to know all my colleagues there, and my first sergeant, uh, a superintendent called uh, Adrian Bex, he he was brilliant and. If he was ever concerned about me, his first port of call was of my mum and dad, and and they adore him, you know, and and so so there was no issue at all with regards to um, their support for me, you know. They they I just knew that whatever I did, they would be there for me, and they they just they they live quite a sedentary lifestyle, and my dad was quite adventurous, really, but mum mom mum certainly wasn't, but they lived their adventures through me you know yeah.
0: and, so, and and one of the one of the interesting points was that I, I wanted to bring up in terms of their their support and their enthusiasm for what you pursued was this incredible career of 30 years in policing and particularly in the marine unit was there ever the question raised at the dinner table like what what about the safety aspects of this 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 diving this diving task that you're taking on is that you know what's the dangers like well what what will they fit will they have any anxieties around your safety
1: uh no because I I'd always explain to them uh, as far as police diving was concerned i mean we we were so safety conscious i mean if if something wasn't safe to do, you didn't do it, yeah, you know because because human life came first, even if you're looking for a dead body, that body is dead, and at some stage the conditions would either be safe enough for you to look for it or or it'd pop up, making it safer to recover anyway, yeah, and so they they Certainly, with regard with regard to police, the diving side of things, they knew that that I would, you know, I the team would never ever put ourselves in a situation where where we would be seriously at risk. It's always risky anyway, because diving is, you, you know, because th- things go wrong underwater. It's it's going to be exasperated by the fact you're underwater, but you make it as safe as possible. And in a way, it was probably more safe than than. Being out on the streets, never knowing from one moment to the next whether you're going to meet a axe wielding murderer or someone with a gun or or whatever you know. So, so they 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 were quite happy that I was, um, not putting myself in in any real real the real danger though. Though it, in a way, it was dangerous, you know.
0: One of, one of the primary roles I think we associate with the police diving team is obviously. Um, predominantly the recovery of of deceased people in water areas and I I wanted to understand the training that you went through which obviously a very intensive eight-week course how do they how do they prepare you for that? Is there a way to prepare for it? Because naturally the natural reaction of, of the body is to, is to fight or flight in terms of the response reactions to, to trauma and to something which we find upsetting to look at or deal with. What was the, what was the sort of mental preparation and, and and barriers that you had to overcome to know that you would be able to deal with that to some extent, the best you possibly could maybe prepare
1: for it? I'm a bit odd really, because there were no mental barriers. Um, I've never, ever had an issue in dealing with dead bodies. Um, that, that For me, there's no threat there. And I actually find it fascinating because a dead body can tell you so much information. And so even before diving, um, I, I never had an issue going to a sudden death uh, because, because I found it in a very strange way interesting. You know, um, I'd never seen a dead body before joining the police, but it... Absolutely didn't bother me, and the the only thing that that that, that the, the part that was worse for me was not the actual handling, seeing, find, you know, dealing with the dead body. It was the actual search leading up to the dead body, and so so if you were in nil visibility, you were always worried that there was there was always this image in your head that suddenly out of the gloom this dead face would come out you know come up at at you and and even though it never happens you know you always had this thought in your mind and so there was always you know your heart was always a little bit pounding you know there was always I don't lie um does that
0: ever go away or is that is that a feeling you get on every search if you're in zero availability looking for a deceased um, person
1: I don't think it ever does, really. There's always a there was always a huge, huge sense of relief in finding the dead body, and there was always that little bit of anticipation before finding it. And the worst, the worst part of it was was if you'd been sur- you'd, you'd you'd got into the water and you'd spend an hour searching in horrific conditions where where you know there were tree trunks, shopping trolleys, all sorts of snags. Your lines would get caught. Uh, you couldn't see anything. You're stirring up mud, and you know, you you, you 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 your anxiety would be building up and building up, thinking, "Oh God, is is that a dead? You know, is that a dead body? Is that a dead, you know?" And 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 then suddenly, you would you would find it, and as I say, the relief was amazing. But if you didn't find the dead body, and you're then you're there, your know, the air was getting low in your cylinder, so you'd then have to get out. Someone else would get in, and if they didn't find the body. You were then having to get back in again. By this time, you already knew that it was pretty horrible down there. And you really didn't want to get in a second time to go through it all over again, you know, and it made it even worse. Um, And it was even worse if um, it, it was okay if you had visibility, because obviously you could see what you were looking for and if you had no visibility it was great because you would literally just switch off from seeing or trying to see and your senses would be completely focused on the sense of touch and you're on search patterns but but your your senses were so heightened in your fingertips and if you were looking for a gun after about, after you know with experience after about a dozen searches for guns you knew exactly when you'd found a gun because you just knew the weight of it the feel of it same with bodies you know whereas you thought um, About a bag of garden leaves was a body, you know, that was dumped in the river. You know, eventually, you knew instantly you'd found an ankle or a, a foot belonging to the body, you know, of part of a body. And and so, with nil no visibility, you you just focus on your sense of touch and just literally switched off into this dark green world, searching for the body. If you had visibility that was intermittent, you were relying too heavily on your eyes, and and I never felt that you did the search as well. When, when you had mixed visibility, you know, because you were going from fingertips to eyes to fingertips to eyes, you know. And so, so it just complicated the, the search.
0: And then I suppose that the, you see the searches being you see you see searches and we've taken part in them you know both you and I would have taken part in them in terms of the very fine detailed searches that you often see like TSG crews doing where literally they're on their hands and their knees and it's just slowly making their way through maybe a grassed area or a patch where they're either looking for shell casings or other bits of evidence is it is that process almost repeated under the water in terms of the fine detail of coverage
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, often we'd be get we'd get called in to look for a bullet casing that would prove that a shotgun had been fired or a weapon had been fired. Um, knives, small knives, um, small guns, um, jewelry. I mean, and you're talking an earring or a ring or something. And there was there was um, oh, what were we looking at? It was an earring, I think, that we were looking for to prove a particular offence, and we found it. But you're literally sifting through, you know, exactly as you, as you would on the land as well, you know. And, and it could take days and days and days, all day long with, you know, different divers going in. Um, and with something like that, you would just have one diver because then they knew exactly where they'd searched. Whereas if you had two divers in, you don't know whether you're overlapping or not. And there might be a gap, you know, so... um Bigger items like bodies or cars, you often put two divers in, three divers in, or even, you know, as many as you could just to get bigger. You could cover bigger areas more quickly to search for a larger object. And what
0: there's obviously been, and I I don't want to go into the case in any particular detail because it is very recent, there's been a lot of media talk recently about the movements of of bodies and items when they fall into the water and the power of the water flow and, and going over weirs and bits and pieces. How how did you, how did the police come to the determination how do you form those sort of calculations as to how fast somebody's body can travel in the water you're obviously taking into the into account the currents and the makeup of of the particular water area or the mass of water you're in but you know is does that come through just years of experience or is there particular formulas that you look at in terms of right this is where we need to look at immediately and then we'll take our search out from there
1: well it's a, it's a combination of all sorts of things really because um first of all Uh, You've you've got to have an idea where they've fallen into the water or gone into the water, and it could be that there's been a witness or someone's heard. You know, it's either seen something or heard something, or there's marks on the bank, or uh, there's a piece of clothing at the side or a suicide note, uh, anything like that. And so, once you've got a start point, then you've got to look at. what size the person was, you know, because obese people, obviously, they they, they, they do float more. Um, clothing they're wearing, um, the temperature of the water, temperature of the weather, wind conditions, currents, whether it's tidal or just flowing, depth of water, and also what's on the bottom and whether or not that person is likely to drift along unheeded or whether they're going to get snagged on things and so there's there's an awful lot to consider and it's it's it's, it's a it's um it's difficult to for the person who's supervising the dive to actually think right this is where i'm going to start this is a search pattern i'm going to use this is how far we're going to search and they've got to take all of these things into consideration and sometimes you just strike lucky where you, you you drop a diver down and they actually land on on the body you're looking for typical example was one in London Uh, we got called to assist the Metropolitan Police for a taxi driver and he he had gone missing and the he'd been murdered and he'd literally been dumped in one of the off one of the keys in in Docklands and the the vehicle that was used he he was actually put into the boot of a vehicle, and the vehicle that was used they stopped at a service station the offenders had stopped at a service station, and they were boasting about what they they were what they were going to do, and someone had overheard them and there were tire tracks leading down to a dock to a docklands and a vehicle had been i think the vehicle had been found, but we were asked to try and find the the taxi driver and he had actually escape from the back of the vehicle he got out and he after you'd found it we actually went down and literally found him straight away but after you found him you discovered that there were there were like fingerprints on the quayside wall where he'd been trying to stay afloat in those days there were no ladders there were no ladders in this particular key and he could he had nothing to hold on to and he eventually just sank down bless him um and so so you know it, it, you you can you can find them straight away, which is it just you know it's great, or you could be searching for days or weeks even you know and uh we've had bodies that that went in during the winter when the river's in flood, and they'd turn up three miles downstream, snagged on a weir or on a on a tree overhanging tree or something and you know often in the win you know certainly around Christmas new year time, we'd always get three or four suicide victims in because christmas new year is a time when people are on their own or have got depression or you know anxieties like that it's highlighted by the fact that everyone else is enjoying themselves with families and things so you'd always get like this this um you know two or three suicides over christmas new year and it was always when the river was high and flowing well and if it was too fast to dive we then you just couldn't get in but what we would do then is is we would put boats in day after day after day and normally bodies, depending on water temperature, would come up within about two to three weeks because of the gases in the body and they would stay up for a while and if they weren't snagged on anything, they would then eventually sink again. So you were always looking in all the snagging areas. You got to know them um, and you'd always be looking at the snagging areas downstream of where the body went in to see whether or not uh, that, that body would come up, and often we would we would find bodies that that were coming up sort of two to three weeks after, um, just just as a, as a result of the the gases. You know, we just recover them then from the surface. The,
0: the the temperature of the water is an interesting one. How does that affect how a body moves through the water in terms of its temperature?
1: Well, it's it's not so much moving. It's whether or not it affects it affects the the speed in which the gases are released within the body. So, the warmer the water is then more quickly the the gases will start to get released, the body will start to decompose more quickly. And so therefore, um, by having these gases in the body, it will come up to the surface more quickly. So in the summer, you can get a body up within sort of a week, 10 days, whereas in the winter, because it's so cold, it'll be sort of 21 days. You know, so it does have an effect on 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 the the sort of chemical response in the body, if you like.
0: Wow. Right, let's talk about some of your more notable investigations that you've taken part in Uh, I'm fascinated to hear some how you got over some of the challenges these we're going to start with one which was really just upon graduation from diving school Um, and I and I wanted to start off if I may in terms of reflecting on the fact that you were a female diver coming into what was predominantly a male dominated environment when you came out on when you when you when you took up your position as a full-time diver was it was the respect amongst your peers something that you'd out because you'd managed to achieve the training and get through it and come out the other side, or was there still some level of convincing to be done, if I can describe it that way, amongst your colleagues when you first arrived?
1: Uh, no, there's. I think there was not not so much. Uh, in fact, it probably wasn't some of, some of my colleagues. It was some of the hierarchy, really. But but I, as I say, I got myself really really fit, and so I made sure that. Whatever the men could lift on the team, I could lift you know so i I could lift an outboard motor all the weights or all the weight belts or the cylinders and you know and got very used got very used to carrying cylinders a mile or so to a dive site or you know and so i I made sure that I was strong enough first of all because I didn't want to be seen as the weak link. I was the smallest on the team and and obviously being female, you haven't got the strength of of some men, but I wanted to make sure that what Ever I was asked to do, I would, I would be able to do. And whether it whether it was lifting a body or lifting the outboard motor, you know. And, and of course, as health and safety became stronger and more more detailed with manual handling and what have you, it was always then two of you had to lift it, and you know. And then there were mechanisms that you could use to lift it, so it always made things easier. Anyway, so in fact later on in my career strength wasn't so much of a an issue
0: but there must have been there must also have been a a huge advantage in terms of your your size and having a smaller stature in terms of having to get into particular places where a bigger larger framed person couldn't get through was it did it play in your favor equally at the same time at at times
1: yeah i i did get used for for um sort of more confined spaces if you like That we had um the the typical example was we had a report of uh, a lady had gone missing from a big big country estate down near Denham and uh, she'd just gone missing she'd been out for the evening and according to her husband who was the gardener uh, she hadn't returned home and there'd been searches made of the gardens and grounds and what have you they weren't quite sure what what was going on there anyway they got a um, a, a body, a, a body smelling, a cadaver dog out, and this dog started indicating at this huge, great, big concrete slab. And on sliding this massive, it was a huge concrete slab. And sliding it back, it revealed this storm drain, which was about um, four foot square and uh, about ten foot deep with water in it. And of course, the body was inside this storm drain. So I got lowered down into the water, and um, had to bag her all up and get her out. But I was I was I was low, low, lowered into it because I was the smallest, you know, <laughs> and I could get down there without disrupting too much. And it wasn't too crowded with just me and her, you know. Whether it's, if it had been one of the bigger guys, it might have been a bit, a bit, a bit more more crowded. Um, and but I mean, she'd been in there a good few weeks, so she wasn't a pretty sight. And I always remember seeing seeing the skin off her, t- there's a complete sort of skin of toes floating around next to me in the water that I kept, for some reason it distracted me, because I kept seeing these, l- these little sort of, it's like air-filled toes floating around next to me. Her toes were still on her feet, but the skin had sloughed off and it filled with air and it was just floating around, and it distracted me, which is a bit bizarre. And as, as they lifted her out the water... That
0: would have certainly distracted me, I just wanted to make that point. <laughs>
1: i I should have given a health warning really shouldn't i for this and and of course she was she was fairly decomposed and i put her into a body bag the body bag was full of water so i had to uh, create uh, create a hole in the now body bags have got drain holes but i had to create a, a hole in the bottom to to allow the water to drain out as they lifted her out and of course lots of bits and pieces were coming out all over me so when i got out i was i was covered bits and pieces of body fat and you know all sorts of things and uh and that wasn't very pleasant because you we all then had to travel back in the lorry with a very very smelly dry suit that, that needed hosing off and we used to hose off our dry suits uh in the car park of the behind the unit where we are based, high pressure hose everything before we disinfected it all. And of course, I did all that. And of course, all these bits went all over the cars in the car oh, park, mate. which which didn't go down too oh, well. Um, so we learnt a lesson, or I learnt a lesson there that you, you you know be very careful where you hose down all your bits and pieces because after you you had you know it wasn't very pleasant. But, but, yeah, I, going back to the original question, yeah, I did get I did get put into smaller places, and also we did lots of security searches um on land in confined spaces because we were trained to look for explosives as well, so that if anyone that was like either a, likely to be a target to terrorists, that sort of thing, then if they were doing a visit somewhere or royalty or prime minister or whatever, then I would get you you know we we would search culverts and tunnels and things and if it was particularly small then then again there was myself and one other on the team that, that were both the same size and he I was either he or me me would get pushed through the the holes you know so let's um let's talk yeah. about
0: this incident at, at, at Blenheim Palace and you've given me very kindly a little paragraph intro which I'll just read out so at Blenheim Palace assisting with the recovery of a man who'd been working on the sluice gates in an underground tunnel used to balance water levels between two lakes. Now, you've described this incident as both being very sad, very dangerous and quite horrific. Can you talk us through this one?
1: Yeah, we, we got called there. Um, this is going back into the, I, I think it's about the late 80s. And um, in the grounds of Blenheim Palace, you've got two lakes. You've got a upper lake and a lower lake. And they are joined by uh, a tunnel under underground with a sluice gate and basically depending on what the water levels are like this sluice gate is raised or lowered to to re- release um release water from the top lake into the bottom lake and it just balances the two and bear in mind this tunnel is is a big big tunnel you could walk up it you know it's, it's a really big tunnel and um they realised they had a problem with the sluice gate. And so they bought in a company with uh, what they call a cofferdam, which is, anyone who doesn't know, it's just like an artificial dam that's put around the top entrance of the tunnel in the, in the top lake. And they then put a big inflatable, like, pillow thing a balloon if you like which then just stopped all of the water getting through into the into the tunnel and then down into the bottom lake and this was going to allow the workers to go into the tunnel to repair the sluice gates and you could actually climb down to it from above as well and they they sent the first couple of guys or they sent the first guy up there to to make sure that everything was okay and and the, the balloon was holding tight at the top and the I, I think it was the supervisor said, I just want you to check that everything's sealed up there. And this guy went up and just pressed the, the balloon and it gave and the water came through and he got swept down. And at that point, the he had actually gone down top side of the sluice gate and there was just a gap underneath. That's right, the, the sluice gate wouldn't close down properly. That was the problem. And so... His job was to release the sluice gate and make sure it was working. Now he went up to the to the, the the sort of inside of the tunnel side of the balloon, pushed it to make sure it was all holding, and it gave. So all the water came through from the top lake, and swept him down, and he got stuck underneath the sluice gate, and the water pressure was immense, and he was. The water was still able to get through, but he was stuck under the seuss gate. And, you you know, he was—he obviously was still alive at this point and they couldn't get to him. We got called to see whether or not we could go down and get him out. And it wasn't so much a dive, but a a climb down and recovering. But on assessing, this is where risk assessments really come into their own, because you realise that the, the top damn thing had given way so there was water charging through if in any way you tried to release this guy it would release more water through which would put you in danger and so we thought what what are we going to you know what are we going to do how are we going to get this poor guy out and in the end um and i mean it's just literally it's just i mean this guy was was deceased by now you know he, he died quite quickly thankfully because because it's pretty horrific But um, it ended up with one of our team on ropes, lowering down and just tying a rope round his wrist and then that was tied to, um, it was linked to a winch of a fire engine and basically um, we then managed to free the, the sluice gate that this guy was trapped under. Oh, and, but he's not
0: going to go any further, is he? Because you've got him tied up.
1: Well, he, he, he went so far and then the winch of the fire engine was able to winch him up against the power of the water and we managed to get him out then and, and recover him properly. But um, it was, it, you know, it, it, it was um it was an operation that took a good few hours and, and that one always stuck with me, only because it was it was horrific looking down at this poor guy and how he, you know, how, how he must have died and... and just how scary the power of water is as well you know the forces of water
0: have you got you know there's there's obviously a hierarchical structure in these major incidents you know gold silver and bronze commanders that oversee these operations from detectives to response officers to sergeants etc i'm going to make the assumption that in terms of the search and rescue efforts and the diving efforts your team and yourself are the what i describe as the combatant authoritative agency that are there in terms of making those big decisions around safety and risk but but equally have you got times when you've got family that are alerted to the situation who come to the scene who then obviously you've got support colleagues there, general duties officers and other people but that must be that must make the whole thing even more emotive in terms of you've got emotional family members trying to a either recover a family member or be Creating a bit of a distraction, and obviously, naturally, being incredibly upset as to what is going on with a loved one.
1: Yeah. Well, the first first part of the question is, you have a, a rank within. Um, it's not a rank; it's a qualification called the police dive supervisor, and that can be any of the officers that have done a course, uh, completed a course, a three week course, and they're taught how to run diving operations. And that, so that's not rank specific; that is purely qualification, and. Uh, only above that have you got um, uh, the dive... Oh, crikey. Oh, look look at this. My mind's gone blank. Uh, you, you've got a, a person responsible at rank level, and I'm talking sort of superintendent level, though it's then delegated to inspector, the dive contractor I'm talking about, who, who is a senior officer who has got nothing to do with diving, has got no diving experience, but they become a dive contractor. And basically, before... The dive supervisor is allowed to put a dive diver into the water in any situation they must contact the dive contractor and inform them of of the incident the location any hazards risk assessments being done et etc et etc now once the dive contractor is happy it's a tick boxing basically um but ba- but you're you're basically fulfilling obligation legal obligations and then on on the scene, I mean, so often we would get called to sites where, where you'd you know you'd be looking for something, and the 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 investigating officer would say, well, "Yeah, but can't you do this more quickly? Can't you do this?" You know, and you'd have to explain to them that no, it's all got to be done in a set way. And uh, the the other thing I found was when I I became dive supervisor in 1992, and I would turn up at a dive site and. The investigating officer would immediately start briefing one of the men. And they, the men, like the guys on the team, I mean, we had a fantastic team, and the guys on the team would then let them go through everything and then take great pleasure in saying, Actually, you don't need to tell me. She's the boss supervisor. <laughs> I love that. That you know? is the best. And, That's, uh, the and, best. and, and we just <laughs> make a joke out of it, you know, because yeah, I love that. it happened over and over again. They just assumed that one of the older guys would be the dive supervisor instead of a like a you know a 30 year old female as I was saying, you know. So i was saying when I became sergeant, you know, they 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 it was exactly the same. You'd you turn up for a briefing for some job and again they, even that, you know, in late this is in the late nineties, you still have the males addressed and they'd say, What are you talking to us for? She's a sergeant, you know. But and it wasn't done nastily. They they you know the lads on the team loved doing it. You know. So. <laughs> going on to the second part of your question about relatives. Yeah, I, I could deal with the dead, no problem, because you're not dealing with any living emotions. But the moment I saw a relative on site, um, I I would avoid them at all costs. Not because you know I didn't want to speak to them, but I I found it very difficult to deal with living raw emotions, and you know and. They would be. They would stand there for hours and hours and hours. And once we, we always wanted to find their loved one for them because it would give them someone to grieve. They they could then start the grieving process. Up until that point, they're in limbo land. They didn't know whether that person was dead or alive, and and so we we would sort of give them closure. And we received so many um, letters, cards them coming up to us thanking us for doing it, even though they were in their worst nightmare, they would still take time out to come and, and you know, hug us, thank us and, and just say thank you so much for all that you've done. And even though, you know, for them it was it was just horrendous, you know. But but they still they still did it
0: importantly you're that link really aren't you the only link that yeah. they've got left in terms of that final connection with the, with their loved ones so it's quite an incredible moment. I, and the,
1: the sad thing just touching on what you said earlier about recent jobs you know the sad thing these days is when I first joined the, the, the team there were well over 30 dive teams police dive teams in the country you know uh, I think it was over 40 actually at one point and now there's about five and over and over again i, I read in a paper that, that relatives have called in a team of private divers and you think you know we did it because we, we did it mainly for the for the relatives because they deserve that no matter who they are and now they're not getting that care they're not getting that you know there's no dignity in death anymore
0: let, let's uh, let's let's cover let's cover that quickly because i think that's a very important point why I suppose the important question is, and I and I don't know the answer to this question, so I'm going to assume it's going to come down to the magic word of funding again. But I assume the demand and the need for dive squads hasn't disappeared because I imagine you know we still have people. In fact, go through more mental health crises and suicide than probably ever before. We talk about the large volume of call for service nowadays for police being around people with mental health crises. It's 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 a, it's a huge part of of policing work, rightly or wrongly. It's another that's another podcast in itself, but the, the, the significant reduction in police diving units across the United Kingdom, as you've quite rightly pointed out, has resulted in the need for private operators to come in and to facilitate that role as best as they possibly can do. And there's obviously a very, very recent case which has hit the media in terms of that response, the communication with the media, how the media handled um, the oversight of that. You know, it's it's a complicated one. Is is it one that upsets you to see that those dive units have have... Just about disappeared and why is that
1: absolutely I mean uh, I, I've um, retired in 2010 and in 2014 my team were closed due to finances funding and and it's you know uh, when, when a police force is, is looking at cutting trying to cut money they look at small expensive departments and diving is probably the smallest most expensive you know department within a within a police service you know um the, just because not only the equipment but the amount of training that you have to have by law and so so yeah it's cutbacks and and i find it i find it so sad to to see that that it's gone this way and and when i heard that my team were closing i i broke letters to anybody and everybody that I thought might listen in. but but you know the powers that be have made up their minds and there's there's not a lot you can do about it especially when you're no longer in the job and and to be honest even while I was in the job I was constantly up against the threat as that which is why when I took over as sergeant I, I I increased our roles to other areas not just within water so so um We were always dealing with bodies we were always wearing breathing apparatus uh so so obviously confined spaces was a confined spaces we always did anyway um because you use breathing apparatus we're happy with that we're happy with being in confined spaces, but we then went on to decomposing bodies on land in in houses and things where they were so decomposed that no one would go into the the property to recover them, so we would go in with um, we then bought lightweight breathing apparatus to go in and deal with decomposing bodies in houses and buildings, etc. Um, we we uh, developed rope access skills to help with suicide victims that had hung themselves so that we could recover them safely. And then we went on to, uh, in 1999, I formed the a major incident uh, body recovery team so that if a plane came down or um, major fatalities anywhere then we would have a team big enough and well-equipped enough to, to, to go and recover either the body parts or the bodies, multiple body parts or bodies. And so I was just trying to make us invaluable to the, to the service so that they wouldn't look at us as, as a small, expensive team because you know we were trying to prove that we were able to go into situations both underwater and on land where nobody else would go to do any form of search or recovery.
0: Do you, and I know you've been away from policing a little while, as have I, but do you think with the most recent recent experiences that have gone on quite publicly, do you think policing units, policing diving units will make a slow return or do you think that they are part of the history of policing?
1: Right, good question. Um, I would like to think so, but I don't think it will happen purely because policing is so underfunded anyway. And um, I think they would need to. They would need to look at the situation nationally to to get a better picture. But they certainly need to provide better national coverage with police dive teams here in where I, I live in Scotland. And there were three police dive teams. There's there's now one centralised team that covers the whole of Scotland. And so. Yeah, well, that makes that, that yeah. makes
0: that makes kind of sense, really, because we have a national police air wing. Each force generally used to have its yeah. own pol air yeah. unit. And we went to sort of national um, platform. It would it would seem to make sense that you could have sort of had this national deployment, you know, where you could, you know, you'd have different regional hubs of divers, which would service all local counties or, you know, big forces like the Met, City of London, Thames Valley. GMP, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That would seem to be an attractive model because the the one big disadvantage I see in terms of utilising the private sector, or one one high risk area between private sector and policing come together, is the commercialization of the particular role in the private sector and the need to make money and for people to be aware that you exist, so that ultimately you can fund revenue and keep your business alive. Whereas in policing, there is no commercial interest; the interests are purely with supporting families and victims. and and, and doing something because you're there to provide a, a public service. So there isn't that need to be in front of the TV screens or the media. You want to get your job done nicely and quietly, support the families and move on to the next tasking when it comes. That's the greatest challenge I can see in terms of, and equally, you've then got that sort of internal communi- communication structure and understanding as to what an SIO or, or your senior investigating officer wants to do, how they're doing something, and you kind of work collaboratively, whereas the private sector doesn't always understand how that mechanism works. And, and quite rightly, the government sector can't share information with the private sector because of, you know, the conditions of police investigations.
1: Mm. I think I think also um, with with regard to, you know, we're talking about most most of the forces had their own dive teams throughout the country and it was a luxury to have a dive team really because any serious crime you get the dive you know and there's water involved you get the dive team and they could come in to look for the property for the weapon for whatever and and now that because the dive teams tend to be more uh regionalized you've got the northwest you've got the northeast you've got the met and there's a couple of others but they, they cover huge, huge areas, so they can only be used for specific things now, such as bodies mm. or very, very high-profile crime jobs, whereas if you had your own dive team in the past, you know, we'd, we'd go, you know, part of our, you know, you have to do so many hours training a month, and one of our training days would always be to go to the River the, the River Chirwell in Oxford, and in Oxford... The Oxford police station had its own stolen cycles department because of the colleges. Bicycles, you know, you're talking hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of stolen bikes going, you know, either being stolen or being recovered. And we'd do the dive, we'd dive in the Cherwell or in the Thames and um, pull out sort of like 15, 20 bikes. That are in perfectly good condition, perfectly oh, identifiable, yeah. and get them, get them returned, you know. But that, that's no longer done, you know. I'd hate to think how many bikes are down there now, <laughs> you know. But, thousands. But, but, you know, you're talking, you, you know, because Thames Valley had their own team, we would we'd just go down and do it, combine it as a training dive and looking for bikes, you know, knowing full well that you'd, you'd recover like thousands of pounds worth of bikes very frequently you know and and so so it's not just about bodies missing people or anything like that it's it was stuff that we could do because we had a dive team you know and uh, help out local areas help out the the local um, site stolen cycle unit and recover stolen bikes for them you know and get them back to their owners so, one, so.
0: W- one area of relevance that you said was important in terms of demonstrating to your force and to, you know, government, both locally and, and I suppose nationally, more importantly, was, was to increase your scope of works. And that was doing the challenging um, sort of body recoveries within premises and on land which had been there for some time where obviously decomposition had taken place and they they can be quite dangerous environments to work around in terms of the gases and and other bits and pieces that can affect the safety of people going in there at a normally trained level so you know you recall this one particular story um, of actually you know tragically standing on top of one lady who's lying under mounds of rubbish because often these environments are incredibly hazardous and tricky and you don't bodies aren't Mm. easily identifiable in some of these premises are you able to give us a couple examples that one included as to kind of the challenges
1: yeah i mean that that the ball started rolling with decomposing bodies in houses and things because we i just got a call one afternoon from a um a detective in newbury and he We'd been called to a house where there was a dead body, and the body had been there for weeks and weeks. Central heating left on, and this body had gone into meltdown. And he wouldn't go in. The doctor sort of pronounced death at the door, and the undertakers wouldn't deal with it. And so they thought, well, underwater search—they're dealing with dead bodies. They got dry suits, breathing apparatus. So we went along and did it. Uh, put our dry suits on, and at the time we just used our diving equipment. And so we went along and recovered this body, and. As a result, the ball started rolling and, it, and uh, we then thought we better get a separate amount of kit, a separate type of kit for dealing with bodies on land, because obviously you're not in water. Um, diving equipment's heavy, so we got lightweight cylinders and a separate, uh, different types of dry suits. And uh, yeah, start, just started going around our force area, recovering bodies from houses that were just too badly decomposed to, to recover by any other means. And and this particular particular old lady lived in a an upstairs flat and the neighbours hadn't seen her for a good few weeks, probably months actually. Um, and they noticed a smell, a postman had noticed a smell coming from the letterbox. So we we forced our way in and and it was just one of these places and, and I'd been to quite a few of these where where These people have just hoarded and just never thrown anything out. And there was just rubbish everywhere. Uh, There was, you know, the toilet was no longer working because it it was just full up with, I hate to, to, I won't say, just very unpleasant. It was just your worst nightmare of trying to search for a house to see what the smell was. And I was stood in the hallway on top of all of this debris and and I don't know what made me look further, but then I realised that I was over, over the top of this tiny little lady that had been a hermit, actually. She'd never gone out, you know, people bought stuff to her door. She she um, never threw any rubbish out and, and you just couldn't work your way through the house. And And I had so many cases of people that lived like that and you had to, first of all, make it safe for you to get in amongst all of the mounds of rubbish, you know um i i can honestly say that the only two times i've had difficulty in dealing with a dead body have been with two bodies not together two separate incidents where i dealt with bodies in houses and it was just so horrendous that that i i knew that if i didn't deal with it there and then i would have to walk out and and get myself together and they're the only two bodies as well where on driving back to the unit i just had to stop the van and get out and just get some fresh air because because i just felt sick you know and and so so yeah they they, they the bodies on land were far far worse to deal with than, than anything in the water um it was you know they were just big big you know and just the fact that we were having to use breathing apparatus and dry suits and things to actually deal with them gives you an idea of just the state that they were in you know and that nobody else would go in and get them out
0: i had um just sort of reflecting on my own sort of experiences just very quickly a bit of a story i I worked in a country town called wyalla in south australia And, and and australia has obviously one of the greatest challenge in terms of dealing with deceased people that aren't found for some time regardless of central heating is just the heat in itself of the environment that australia is in and i remember getting called to a property as a shift supervisor to back up a couple of my crews that had gone to a property with exact same circumstances where somebody hasn't been seen for three to four to five weeks something it was along those type a long time frame and a guy that was actually quite unwell was suffering from cancer and no one had checked on him and you get there and the window is completely black but it's not black with discoloration it's black because of the amount of flies and, and, and you and you tap it and then they disperse oh, yeah. Yeah. and then you think to yourself this is going to be incredibly unpleasant for everybody yeah. and it gets to the point where decomposition's got so bad that this poor individual that was once a human being that you're trying to pay so much respect to because you know that's an important part of what uh-huh. we do is trying to consolidate what has occurred to this person over this period of time becomes quite a horrific challenge. And I I must admit, in terms of I still remember that event from all those years ago, thinking to myself, you know, and and when you're a supervisor as you were, as you know, as a sergeant, your your focus is on the welfare of your people, you know, also trying to think about yourself, but equally trying to look after those around you because it can affect people in different ways, but they're incredibly challenging scenes to deal with. They are, with. and
1: I, I think, I think um, also they're incredibly sad because it, this person has died alone, and if anybody cared about them, they would have been found, or they wouldn't have been living in those situa- those situations, those conditions. And I used to always find that incredibly sad, that, that they, they hadn't been found, and they'd only been found because either... The person in the flat downstairs noticed that something was dripping from the ceiling and it was maggots or the stench you know and and so so and it wasn't because they checked to see if they were okay
0: no it's um and, and that's and that is the sad part the loneliness and the fact that nobody was there to yeah. to support them The one, area, the one area that I want to talk about in terms of your career, before we talk about some of the accolades, you know, you're a recipient of the Queen's Police Medal, which we'll talk about very shortly, but is is the skill and the resilience of dealing with death, which is a challenging one, has led to you working and, t- and your role really taking you sort of international. And I, I suppose I'm reflecting on the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami in, in Thailand, which was a horrific event with um, a horrendous, Loss of life in terms of the quantum of that event was incredibly chilling. There are still, you know, there are videos that you can watch of this mass of water coming in, people on the beach and just not seeing what's coming, and it's it's quite chilling to watch some of those videos back and to see what people were facing. It was quite horrific. visible as a faint line of foam on the horizon. The man filming from the top of a car park knew immediately what it meant. <laughs> It was Boxing Day 2004 when a magnitude 9.1 earthquake triggered one of the worst natural disasters in living memory. Entire towns were swallowed by the sea. The death toll is already in the hundreds and is likely to rise further. After so many have lost so much, there have been some outbreaks of looting as people try to survive in a city without power order or communications so you went over there in 2005 obviously just shortly after to take part or or to to assist with the victim identification and i suppose i had a couple of questions is that a because there were british tourists there which needed to be identified and and brought back home or is it just because purely the skill set of british policing and and your expertise in dealing with 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 body identification supporting people through these quite difficult incidents led you to, to head over there to support
1: well, I mean, prior to prior to the tsunami, as I said in nineteen ninety nine, I I actually asked our um emergency guy at headquarters, you know, if a if a jumbo jet came down in Thames Valley area, who'd deal with it? And he said, Oh, well, your team—they're always dealing with bodies. And there's only eight of us, and I thought well, that's that's a bit unreasonable to think that we're going to cope with like four or five hundred people, and so I set about uh, long story short, I set about chaining a team up. Uh, from officers from specialist departments uh, to deal with major incidents where you either got multiple body parts or multiple bodies so that so that you make sure that you recover every single part of that body and return it to, you know, the, the respective body part to that respective body, et cetera. And as a result, we had 90 officers trained within Thames Valley. The, the Thames Valley were incredible at, at supporting me in this because they realised it was a valuable asset to have. And as a result, you know, within within a week of our the first course I ran, we had a four person air crash, mini air crash, where there, where there were four people killed and um, thirty two body parts. Uh, sorry, no, no, I tell a lie. The very first the very first course we ran, it was a, a multiple car crash. Two cars crashed into each other, burst into flames. So we had four people to recover that were that were burnt. Um, and there were 32 body parts. second one was a plane crash with four people in, and that was 90-odd body parts. Um, Then we had the after Nervet rail crash, where there were uh, obviously multiple victims, which we helped recover. And then, um, obviously, 2004, the tsunami. And I was here on Sky celebrating Christmas, saw that happen, and as soon as it happened, I thought, we're going to get involved because there's got to be British nationals there and of course it, it it went from you know a few hundred deaths to a few thousand to then hundreds of thousands and sure enough with within days I'd got a call to say um can you get a team together and basically the the Thai government had realized that there were so there was a huge international um population of holidaymakers there, you know, that go every year from all over Europe, America, Canada, you name it. And uh, obviously there were a lot of Brits.
0: Next thing I know, we could hear loads of screaming and shouting outside. And we could see there was a majority a lot of women running outside. They're running towards the train tracks and turning left. And then you could hear the water coming. And um, I could just hear the water rushing, rushing towards us. And I could see it Next thing I know, it come up even further and it was actually coming in through the trains because the trains don't have doors that close. The water started to come in, then the train actually got moved off the tracks. Our carriage got moved off the tracks and um, water started pouring in.
1: And so uh, the UK government were contacted to see whether or not anyone could help out. And at the time, we were one of the only forces in the area, in the UK that actually had a team trained up to deal with that. And I think there were only about four other, four or five other forces. And so we, um, after, uh, I, I was asked if I could get a team of 15 together, including myself. And uh, so, so got, got through, went through the process, obviously, of uh, uh, seeing who was available, first of all, and then looking at once we were available, whether or not they were going to be available for a month. We were going to be out there for a month. And eventually whittled it down to fifteen, and and the the then chief constable Peter Nayroyd was absolutely fantastic and totally supportive, and literally gave me a blank chequebook to get the right equipment for the job, and um, and the training, the extra training, and we then had to go for psychological assessments and have every uh, vaccination known to man to protect us against any disease. Basically, we're like pink cushions and. We went out in early March for a month and uh, we were based, we were actually based in Phuket um, but expected to work at two, two uh, one of two mortuary sites that had been set up, temporary mortuary sites that had been set up. One was on, site one was up in um, mainland Thailand in a place called Thakwapa. And which was one of the hardest hit areas and the other site was a brand a brand new that that, that was set up in a um, a monastery given to given to the authorities by the the monks the buddhist monks and so that was like a monastery converted into a temporary mortuary site 2 was a place called Maikau on the north end of Phuket and that was a purpose built monastery a purpose built uh mortuary that had been brought in by the Norwegians and uh, that being been set up the north end to take anyone from the Phuket area that had been recovered and yeah we flew, we flew out there in, in the march and we originally were supposed to work at site one but when we got there uh, there was an asbestos scare so we ended up down at site two and we were there for a few days and then we ended up working at site one for the month and I ended up going, I, while I was still out there, I was then asked if I could go back um, in the May with three of my team. And then while I was in there, there in the May, I was then asked if I could go out there in the August uh, to, to be, uh, during those two times we were, we were dealing with uh, the mortuaries, moving bodies, identifying the bodies with paperwork and bringing them into the mortuaries for the specialists to do all their forensics with. And then on the last the last occasion when I was there on my own, I was working with a team of uh, six Australians and I was the body release officer because by then nearly all of the bodies on site uh, on site two they, they were um, they'd, all, they'd nearly all been identified and we were just waiting for them to be released uh, to either families if they were Thai locals or to embassy officials from the respective countries from where where the people were missing from.
0: How how bad was it when you got there in terms of the devastation and the destruction that this natural disaster had caused?
1: It was. Uh, it left you speech, speechless, really. It was unbelievable because um, you didn't realise just how vast an area had been affected. And even where we were, which was relatively safe and untouched, you only had to walk, say, not even half a mile and you'd see complete and utter devastation. But I always remember the very first drive that we did north to drop down to Cowlack. And there's like a viewpoint which looks right at the Cowlack beach, which is a massive tourist area, massive, you know, beautiful hotels, beautiful beaches. And it looked like it had just been bombed. And as far as I could see, you know, you, you could not see anywhere that had not been touched by the wave. And, all the way along there were hotels where you could see watermarks you know up to the second level of the buildings the main road that we drove along was like a sandbar um, there was a police boat in a field like a mile and a half away from the actual beach that had been swept a huge big coastal police boat being swept right through the village of Cadillac right right across the road and into this field and and so it went on and even but even in those early days there was a massive clear-up campaign I mean the Ties are amazing people and they just get on and do it and there were refugee camps set up just for the homeless because obviously a lot of people have been displaced and then you get up to the to a place called takropa a little town just north end of Kowlak, which is where the monastery was and first of all the heat was i'd never been anywhere that hot ever um it was it was like 39 40 degrees with like 80 90 humidity and you the moment you got out of the vehicle you were just you know just completely and utterly drenched with sweat and you got out at the uh site one which was the monastery and you had to all to all effects it looked like a beautiful monastery with all the gold trappings and things and then on closer inspection you saw all these these sort of makeshift tents and things which was our living area, if you like, where we went and stored all our kit and got changed. There was only very, very rough hole-in-the-ground toilets, no decontamination at all. It was just a football with bleaching that you'd set your boots into. Um, and then you went through a gate into this, this courtyard area that was just full of big refrigerated containers. Um, and they they were full of bodies. And on each of the container door, you had a plan of the shelf unit inside each container with numbers on, and you realise each of these numbers. And in each container, they could they could hold sort of, you know, dozens of people. And you realise all these numbers were people inside. And you know, at the end of it, we worked out that we we we'd helped to identify up to four, over four thousand six hundred bodies. Um, and it was it was it was. It was Not so much the first time, because we were really full on with, because bodies were still coming in as well, still being recovered. And we were just flat out pushing them through the the identification process, which was um, fingerprinting, odontology, uh, post-mortem and DNA. And so we were getting them through all of these processes and creating all of the paperwork for it. But there were lots of people about... On my my last tour out there, there was six of us, six of Australians, myself, um, two two pathologists from the UK, and um, a, a few uh, Thai soldiers who helped. And we were at site two, which was a much bigger site, and it was a very lonely place then. But before, it was very bustling with loads and loads of people about. But now there was just like a few of us. And the wildlife was creeping in again. You were finding snakes every single day. They are just getting everywhere. Before the people, they, because there was so much activity before, the wildlife stayed out. But once that disappeared, the, the wildlife came back in. And often you were walking down to a container at the far end of the yard, and you felt it felt very strange being the only living person amongst hundreds of dead people around you you know you you realize that in all of these containers I think that's when it really hit home to me on the last trip out there because because um, first of all you were on I was on my own from the UK Um, I had no other police colleagues with me Um, and I found it the the first two times it was physically demanding the last time I was there it was a huge mental um, stress because I was dealing with the relatives coming to collect their loved ones. And on a daily basis, I'd have these lovely, lovely Thai people that couldn't speak a word of English. I couldn't speak Thai, though I learned to count in Thai, because all of the bodies had unique numbers on. And the Thai people would turn up with a piece of paper with a unique reference number on. And so I was able to say, Song and if I got it wrong, they'd correct me and it'd break the ice a bit, you know. Um, And so often, and, and they're not, touchy feely people you know they're very private people very shy but i i just found myself hugging so many of them because they were just breaking their hearts this was often their third or fourth family member they were coming to collect you know and they would travel hundreds of miles to get there and uh, i i just found it incredibly moving and and i learned it, from from the way they dealt with death the Buddhism in buddhism i learned so much from it and it actually really put me at ease in dealing with death as well and in fact short, three years after when two years after when my dad died I used a few of the little methods that, that, that I was taught by the Buddhists with my dad's funeral and then with my mum's funeral you know and I found that what gave them peace and comfort gave me the same peace and comfort dealing with my mum and dad like that you know so I actually learned from them but I found it incredibly moving incredibly sad and there was a day went by when I, I was in, reduced to tears, just, just at the heartbreak of seeing these poor people recovering their loved ones and pleading to be able to be shown their, their, love, their loved one while we were there. And, and we'd made a policy never to show them their loved one because, they, they, because the bodies were in such a bad state. And, you know, you'd have to explain to them that the person in the photograph that they were clutching no longer resembled what was in that body bag you know, so if they wanted to open it once they'd left the site, they could. But but while they were with us, we wouldn't let them do that. But we let them, you know, obviously put things into the coffin with the body just to, you know, just to perform their, their Buddhist routines and what have you. But it, it was incredibly moving. And I, I installed, um, um, I, I just made sure there were tissues there, got water for them to drink. There was a little Buddhist little Buddha with candles and things they could light a candle we got a big fan put up that sprayed um cold water just to keep things cool and I just I used to stand in when I felt the tears were coming I'd stand in front of that and blame it on the water from the fan you know because (laughs) because uh you know it was just I just I couldn't help myself because uh it was just so incredibly moving so moving
0: one of the I think greatest challenge for all of us is as, as cops is 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 dealing with of death of adults is something that I think most of us can deal with, but how is it during that period of dealing with that tsunami where you are having to process you know deceased children? That's always really challenging.
1: Well, the, the, the difficult thing as well with 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 the the kids was, was that you had these containers just stacked full of bodies in body bags, and you'd be given you know we'd, 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 we'd create. Um, paperwork for each and every body um, with a unique reference number and that, that piece of that paperwork would stay with that body right to the very very end before it's released if you like and once you knew you're looking for a body uh, a, a a child if it was a baby it was a job finding that 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 small package in amongst all the big packages of adults first of all you know so the so the physical challenges to begin with to try and you know, because often we we, we actually found that, that um, whoever, I can't think which team we took over from, but they did not understand the system in the containers and so the bodies weren't where they were supposed to be. So you go to the door of the container with this number that you're looking for, look onto the, the plan on the door, say, right, it's on the third shelf up, fourth shelf along, and you go there and it wasn't there. And so then you're having to climb in amongst all of these bodies looking for a smaller body bag with a, a child in. And so so that in itself was quite dangerous because often there'd be bones sticking through and, and one of our lads got spiked with a bone. Um and you know, there's there was it was made much more difficult when you were looking for kids and, and obviously there's always there's always a thing, you know, it wasn't even the tsunami, it was, you know, throughout my diving career, we were always pulling uh young children out or teenagers out. you know it was a regular occurrence, and it was never ever easy and And you always found that the officers on the team that didn't have children would always volunteer for the job rather than the ones that did have kids 'cause it you know it, it they they didn't have quite the same connection though it was always very sad um but yeah it was it there there were always there were lots of kids in Thailand and um it was always very difficult it was it was, it was a difficult job anyway it's a fantastic job um and it, you know I was I'm proud to be part of it it was life-changing for me and um and it was also good to do a job that that you trained for and you're actually able to then put that training into practice because uh, so often you had skills within the police that you trained for and you never actually got to use and this this was just you know, this is something we've been training for since nineteen ninety nine and, and we we then got to put it to good use and uh so so you know in that respect it was it was good and as a result of the tsunami going just going on on tangent slightly, um that's when they real because British teams were coming out and some of them weren't equipped at all and we we left lots of equipment that we'd gone out with for the team that took over from us. And some some had received very little training and as a result there became um uh from through dundee university and professor sue black they created uh the uk dvi disaster victim identification team which is a national um uk police response for disasters and uh, looking for victims
0: it was interesting i you know it was um in one of the i think the second episodes of the podcast i did last year i sat down with a chap called matt calverley who formed part of the Disaster Victim Identification Team shortly after the 7-7 terror attacks because the Metropolitan Police, as example, recognised that it didn't have enough people trained, ready to go for those sort of really mass casualty events, which, you know, obviously this one touched on terrorism. Um, and I was in awe of the amount of people that had put their hands up during that application. I think he said there were over a 1,000 applicants who wanted to put their hands up, put themselves forward, to be able to help or support in some shape or form during one of those types of incidents, which just was incredible to, to think that there was people willing to put themselves. It's a, it's an incredibly difficult, tough job, which requires an awful amount of resilience. And I think he said his first experience, as you said, he'd done all this amazing training, but never had the opportunity to really utilise those skills. And sadly, that training came to the forefront after um, a terrorist incident in Europe um, where there was mass British casualties. But, um, it's you know, we always talk about moments in our careers that we're incredibly proud of. Is there any particular ones that stand out for you or is it your work in in Thailand that is probably at the, the forefront in, my, in terms of really proud moments of being involved in something like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, behind the scenes, I um, I was uh, part of a very small committee that completely rewrote uh, the police diving rules, which took a good ten years to do. I mean, it was a massive massive job. Um, before, prior to that, we we um, followed the Royal Navy diving rules, and they they were quite outdated. Um, we still use the same search patterns, but there are a lot of things you know as, as diving's moved on and equipment's moved on, etc and legal requirements have moved on then things had to change and so so um to improve the safety of police diving was was you know good as far as like you know this it can only be good and i was very proud to have been part of that and to have produced the finished document which is still in existence today i think um but yeah the 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 tsunami was was something that that will stick with me and uh as a result of that, I'd formed a, um, a charity because while I was out there, I got to meet 32 um, children that had lost everything and they were living in a tent and uh, the lady that rescued them, a, a Thai lady called Rajana, who became one of my dearest, dearest friends, um, she she had rescued them all and I got to know her while I was out there and in between. Coming back the first time, and going out the second time, I started fundraising, and each time I went out there, basically, I went out with a wad of money and said, "What do you need?" And it was it was a washing machine to wash the kids' clothes because they they'd been washing them in pond water, um, soap, um, nappies, rice, milk for the babies, that sort of thing. And uh, on my last trip out there, I sat there, a couple, sat with her a couple of nights before I came home, and said, "What is it you'd really?" You really want for the kids and she said a home. So I came back and thought, can I do it? And set up a charity and and raised uh first of all raised over fifty thousand to build them their first home, which the Thai Treasury heard about and decided to match. So we we're able to build a much bigger orphanage. And then as time went on um bought them vehicles, uh planted um rubber plantations so that they've got income. Um, built them hydroponic units and hydroponics units so that they could grow their own vegetables and things. And it went very quickly, went from 32 kids to 48 to 64, it went up to over a hundred at one point. Uh, they can take over a hundred. Um, and the kids that are there now, uh, are no longer tsunami orphans. They're kids from all sorts of walks of life. Rajana, I've had them, uh, had them over to Sky, groups them over to Sky on, I don't know how many occasions. And Rajana, um, was just the, the most amazing leader there. Unfortunately she died of breast cancer um three years ago. And um is
0: this the lady that is is this the lady that appears on the back of your book?
1: Yeah, Roshanna, yeah. Roshana, yeah. Mm. And uh and she her job, she'd been training, and I knew about this, she knew she was going to die, and she'd been training one of the original tsunami orphans, a lad called Game, um, to take her place. And so Game now, he's in he's 30 now. He's uh, got a, a law degree. He's got a child psychology degree. He's he he's been there, so he knows he empathises with the kids, and he's doing a fantastic job. And I continue to support him. I've I've actually stopped running. Sadly, I stopped running my charity now. Um, only only last year, and only because the charity achieved everything it set out to achieve, and. Uh, I still continue to support them. I still raise money for them, but just not under a charity umbrella anymore. And it's only because I've been running the charity since two thousand and five, and running it more or less single-handedly with a team of trustees. But but I did everything for it, and um, I just I just felt I could still do the same job without the hassle of of running a charity, basically. Um, so I still support them. Still in contact with them, and uh, yeah, very very proud of of. Being able to support so many kids, basically, and very grateful to the the very sort of hundreds and hundreds of very generous generous donations throughout you know throughout these years of raising money, Um, and all of that led to, I I think probably you say proudest moment. I think I think my proudest moment was when my dad was still alive, and um, I'd been awarded the Thames Valley Police Shrivalty Award. And and it's the three high sheriffs of um, Oxfordshire, Berkshire, and Buckinghamshire decide uh, the candidates who's who's going to get the award. And and I I was chosen to get the award for for um, being you know my work as a female in a very male you know sort of dominated environment and leading the way for women. And also my work with the police diving rules and safety, and my tsunami work and charity work. And my mum and dad came down because my mum and dad moved up to Sky with us. My my mum and dad came down for that with me and my husband. And I always remember that morning, my dad saying, oh, have I got the right tie on? How do I look? And I said, you look fantastic, Dad. And, you know, he was so, so proud of that that day. And he said, oh, um, I'll just sit, in, me and your mum will just sit in the corner. I said, no, the chief constable, Sarah Thornton, uh, then I said, she is specifically asked to sit next to you, Dad. And he was saying, oh, "I, I don't know whether I, I." I said, "You'll be fine." And it turned out they, they, they were just like they, they were laughing and joking the whole way through. And he was so proud. And yet, five days later, he died suddenly of a heart attack, which was just devastating, you know. And and you went from an ultimate high of seeing your your dad just so happy and so proud and looking amazing, and having a time time of his life there with the chief constable and being really cheeky and naughty with her and misbehaving to, you know, by the following Tuesday, I, 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 on the, they were traveling back up the sky that weekend. Me and my husband Ian were flying out to the Arctic circle for a um, cross country skiing trip that we normally go on. And Tuesday morning, I'm getting a call to say your dad's having a heart attack. Your dad's there. I was getting a running commentary basically. And, um, we then had Have to you get... got?
0: Have you got siblings, Jill?
1: No, no, only no, child. I can't, can't have kids. Got a dog. Got a, dog. Got a lovely dog. But <laughs> but. Um, no, have yeah. you got?
0: Have you got brothers and sisters? Oh,
1: sorry, 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 siblings. Sorry, yeah, sister. One sister. Yeah, who oh, okay. um, lives down south. But yeah, we we just had to we had to fly get an emergency flight back to Helsinki and then Helsinki to uh Heathrow and then our car was in Gatwick and it was just this hellish journey to get up to the sky for my mum and to see my dad lying there. Uh, so so that was probably my proudest moment. And then that that then followed um, in 2009 is, is being awarded the Queen's Police Medal. And that was bittersweet because my dad would have loved it. My mum was there and Ian's mum was there. And, it, and we just, the, the force were amazing. They, you know, they just fought as rotten well, and laid on a car and we got you know my um we got we we were allowed to drive into buckingham palace and I, i'd been actually hoping <laughs> the highlight for me actually was uh was the fact that one of my singing heroes was joe cocker and the same time i found out i'd been awarded my qpm i'd learned that he'd been given an award by you know the queen as well and i thought Oh, I hope Joe Cocker's there. I hope he's there. And as we drove in, the security <laughs> guard said, Oh, I've just had to check in Joe Cocker. And I just went, Yes! And, uh, <laughs> and when, I there, when we got there, I had to go off to a separate room for a briefing. Um, and my and Ian and my mum and mum-in-law went off to their seating area. And I went into this room, and there were all the recipients all stood round mingling, flight check-chat. And all on his own at the back was Joe Cocker. And I thought if I don't say something now I will regret it for the rest of my life and uh, I went over and I just said Joe I said you don't know me I said but I just want to congratulate you and and from that moment on we we just stood there chatting and chatting and he was the loveliest loveliest guy and and that was a huge huge highlight for me going there never mind Prince Charles giving me my medal you know (laughs) (laughs) it's all about Joe Cocker (laughs) lovely guy (laughs)
0: <laughs> so so um as we say you departed um from policing on january the 20th 2010 you'd completed your 30 year service with from the police and from midnight, you would be, as you quite note in your book, a civilian. And you've been asked many times, do I miss your work? And you can honestly say it was an incredibly smooth transition into civilian life. You love the life you lead in Sky with your husband, Ian, um, also a former serving police officer. You've written this incredible book, searching, I, I mentioned at the, at the start of the show, Searching High and Below, A Policewoman's Tale, Looking for the Dead and Finding Hope for the Living. Was that... I suppose at the point of retirement and before writing this book, had you realised you'd been part of something quite special in terms of your sort of pioneering work as a female diver in the police and that that was an important story to share?
1: I never thought of it as special. I just thought of it as different. I just thought of it as, you know, it was, to me, it was, it was just the job. It was the best job on the planet. You know, I was just um, lapping it up, really, because it was everything. You know, I was I was in a different location every day. I worked with a great team. I I was it was adventure really and but you were helping people you know you were really helping people or or you were you were you were helping to find that missing link in a series of links in a crime you know Um, and so you knew that it was it was it was a very unique job very different and very invaluable Um, but I never saw it special at all it was just the job at the end of the day which I adored doing but but yeah I find retirement even more enjoyable.
0: Well, I have to say the last, what we've been talking for, 90 minutes now, has been an incredibly fascinating journey in your life within Thames Valley Police, within a diving unit. I think if if there's a greater, you know, my saying has always been, you know, we're ordinary people that do extraordinary work. And I think um, the work that you have carried out throughout your 30 years of policing is um and an incredible highlight of that because the amount of resilience and determination and support for families that you bring in often in an indirect way in terms of being able to reunite them with their loved ones um, is quite incredible. So I think, you know, in in terms of, on behalf of my team here at the podcast, thank you ever so much for your service. Um, And, and ultimately, you know, giving people that listen to this and I hope, you know, young women joining the police understand, you know, that they can achieve anything and that, you know, these dreams of, 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 being in what were hopefully no longer stereotypically male-dominated environments, male-dominated environments, they can be a part of and lead because you know there is there's no barriers at all. You know, hopefully those barriers have been broken by people like you and what you've paved the way for for people to follow you. So, thank you ever so much for coming on the show. And as we say, I've bought a copy of this book. I can't wait to get reading it. And uh, we wish you all the best in 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 your retirement in your exploration in your art and photography up there on the island sky it's a magnificent place to live
1: thank you very much you're very welcome
0: protect and serve is a mash pumpkin production hosted by oliver lawrence research and questions by oliver lawrence and robert Win Stanley. produced edited and sound designed by jack lawrence